0: Hello and welcome to Kickout 299. I'm Alicia. Rachel will not be joining me this week, but they will be back for our next episode dropping on Tuesday, March 8th, so never fear. Today I bring you an interview with Jonathan Foy, author of Gombaru: How All Japan Pro Wrestling Survived the Year 2000 Roster Split. Though this roster split is very famous for resulting in the birth of pro-wrestling Noah, Gombaru was unique in that it covers a story from all Japan's side of things, and how they were able to pull the promotion back from the brink of disaster. This is one of the most fascinating periods of wrestling to me, so it was such a privilege to sit down with Jonathan and talk about his career, the research that went into Gombaru, his thoughts on key figures from both sides of the split, and truly so much more. I highly recommend purchasing this book, which is available now on Amazon in paperback and ebook formats. I reviewed Gombaru for Kickout on our ezine as well, which you can find by going to kickout299.wordpress.com. So without further ado, let's get into it. So Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit about you?
1: Yeah, sure. So I uh, my main sort of role, I guess, right now, uh, my f- main job is I edit Insights Magazine for the United Church in Australia. That's been my main role for the past four years. Uh, I teach at University of New South Wales part-time on top of that. Uh, And my other main uh, kind of responsibility is I have a two-year-old son who I take care of two days a week. So between all of those things, uh, I stay pretty busy. Um, But only recently have I kind of had the chance uh, to really get involved in what I've enjoyed doing a lot more than I I even thought I would, which is just writing about wrestling and actually being able to put my writing skills towards that. So that was... um, that was something I did during, uh, Sydney's lockdown, uh, a couple of months ago. So last September, we were in the midst of kind of being locked down again. And, um, only then did I really take the chance to actually get to really write about wrestling as much as I would have liked for this book. So, uh, yeah, that's my first book that's out. It's been in the works for a while. It's an interest of mine, um, that I've had, uh, to explore. I've wanted to write this book for a long time. So it's great to see it actually unfurling and to get to see that.
0: Excellent. And for everyone who's listening, what, where can people follow you to learn more about your work and just keep up with what you're doing?
1: So uh, my main handle on Twitter is at uh, Jonathan for just my name, um, very boring Twitter handle. But um, <laughs> apart from that, uh, I write for uh, Insights as Page mostly that's um uh, mostly for the website. So uh, insights.uca.org.au for anyone interested in following that. Um I've tried to write about wrestling for that site just a little bit. So I uh, when things happen like um when glow was a thing on Netflix and when we had a chance to review that and uh when dark side of the ring came out, I was reviewing that a fair bit. So I've had the chance to write a little bit about that. So anyone that wants to follow that sort of thing. There's a bit of the content out there like that, but, um, not as much of a chance to write about wrestling. Like I said, as I I would have (laughs) liked, um, I write about whenever I can. Um, but you won't see it as much uh, on there.
0: Well, definitely. I mean, I'll be checking out some of your dark side of the ring stuff. That sounds excellent. Like you mentioned, we're here today to primarily discuss Gombaru, which is your first book published back on January 4th about how all Japan pro wrestling survived the 2000 roster split. But before we get into sort of the meat of that in Fumi Saito's forward, he mentions that you started following wrestling during the attitude era and magazines and forums are what helped you discover Japanese wrestling. So I'm super curious. What was it about Purasu that caught your attention and who were some of the wrestlers or what were the promotions and matches that really drew you in?
1: So I think um, my first real encounter with professional wrestling was through, as you mentioned, the Attitude Era. And on occasion, you kind of then see some of the Japanese wrestlers that were coming through, the likes of Tajiri. And um, with Tadiri particularly, it was his kicks, it was his style being this interesting mix of lucha, which you see a little bit of, but uh, that and kind of the hard-hitting kind of uh, mix Well, some of the others like Ultimo Dragon and and the like who kind of made their way through to the US. Um, So as well as that, I think it was just this idea that wrestling could be presented as something different to what you see on TV all the time. So I read McFoley's book and he went into that a little bit as well in his first book. He sort of talks about his time in Japan, about the Japanese audience. And from that, I somehow got this idea that Japanese wrestling was this ultra-violent kind of thing based on the kinds of (laughs) matches he had. And um, he talks in that one a little bit about um, kind of his experience working for All Japan Pro Wrestling, but you still get this idea just based on maybe the stereotypes of the way that uh, you think about Japanese wrestling based on if you've seen Mick Foley's book or if you've kind of seen some of the footage of his matches that the WWF at the time were airing. Uh, you kind of get this idea that that's what it, it's like. So with that idea in mind, um, when I finally did get to see a couple of other matches uh, from all Japan. Um, so this was when I was on forums later, I think in my university years, uh, I saw a bunch of different forums where people would talk about Misawa or they'd talk about the split. Um, or I, I read about this briefly um, during high school, but there's no way to really understand that when, you've never seen the product before or it's outside of your context. So I I knew that who Vader was um, and there was talk about Vader at that time staying loyal to Motoko Baba. And uh, we've learned later that that's not what happened, but the initial reporting of that was that he was going to stay loyal. So when he actually did split to Noah, um, that was a big news item. That was not what Vader was expected to do. So uh, I knew who he was from the WWF is my point. And I knew um, about some of these stars that ended up over in Japan. So knew about it as this exotic place, but hearing about Misawa, hearing about Noah and all Japan, I got to see some of these matches, but they were outside of context. I didn't know what the story was. I was just watching and seeing this spectacular kind of display of head dropping of them hitting each other very hard and then seemingly not selling anything. That was kind of very, my, my first match, I don't think I particularly understood it very much. Um, You kind of need to see a few of these things and get the style points. But look, I, um, I definitely watched a whole lot of that. I had a ritual where I'd come home from my work. I'd take a pizza with me. I would sit there and I'd watch some all Japan match back when I actually like could get away with doing that. But two to three nights a week, um, (laughs) which is disgusting now that I think about it, but it, that was my introduction to Japanese pro wrestling. And to me, Just seeing how hard hitting it was, seeing this very different style, hearing the crowd react as they do, I think that drew me in.
0: Right. I think the crowd is especially what even drew me in when I first started watching that era of wrestling. So I I completely, you know, relate to you there. And you've, you talked before that you're an, you're an editor for insights magazine. You, you wear a lot of hats, you tutor part-time, yeah. you also hold your PhD in communication. So you, you have a very extremely impressive resume, but when did you actually start writing about wrestling? Is there any experience you had with writing prior to Gombaru? I know that you mentioned that you've been writing some stuff for insights, but is there anything even beyond that where you had been writing about wrestling?
1: I mean, here and there, so uh, there was a magazine in Australia called Hyper, which was, one of our big video game titles. And I wrote about how in, if you look at a lot of the American wrestling games, so a lot of the titles that have the WWE likeness or the WWE license, they had, um, for instance, some of the SmackDown games. And certainly if you look at some of the, the, I'm dating myself a little bit here, but the Aki wrestling game. So WWF No Mercy from <laughs> 2000, it kind of moves a lot more like a puro game. Like you watch them, they drop each other on their heads. They have times that they try to get up but fail to get up and these sorts of things you would not particularly see in a WWF match at the time. You'd see that in an all Japan match. And that's because the people that made the games were themselves um, huge Puro fans, but also a Japanese team. So their primary kind of cultural experience was with the Japanese pro wrestling. And they even said in, in one interview uh, one of THQ's Game devs at the time said that if they were Americans, WWE would be part of their own culture. In other words, here's a product that is uh, ostensibly about an American product, but is actually thoroughly Japanese. So I, I got the chance to write for Hyper a little bit. I've wrote about um, that kind of thing about like the, the Japanese background to these American licensed games, and uh, I got to talk a little bit about Pure Games through that. But um, unfortunately, Hyper was sold. And when that sale went through, one of the things that they seemingly did was switch off the server or delete the entire website. So all those stories that I wrote at that time are now gone. Oh, like, no. <laughs> that's a, that's a loss. That's hard to describe. You can access them through the internet archive and through the kinds of projects uh, like uh, the Wayback machine and things like that. So they're not truly gone. You can actually access, access them, but it's still, frustrating that they're all yeah so i I had a chance to write about that for that site and for another site that um was kind of a self-publishing site called suite 101 which i'm pretty sure has also been shut down since then so you won't be able to find any of this is one of my (laughs) major points here um i've written about this stuff it's largely gone now um but yeah that, that was really it um with insights we had a friend of mine who's a uniting church minister who basically told me um you know, uh, another friend of mine is also a United Church minister who's a, a wrestling fan as well, and he said, "Oh, I really want to see a podcast where Jonathan and Liam try to compare the New South Wales and ACT Synod of the United Church to the WWE." He's just joking, right? <laughs> so we did it, and um we put together this podcast where we kind of went over WrestleMania weekend, the links that we saw between faith and wrestling, what the two have in common, and there's a lot more than than you would think in terms of pro-wrestling has gatekeeping fans. Christians are often quite gatekeeping as far as their faith goes. And as far as in-groups and out-groups and exclusion of a lot of people. Um, So a lot of horrible history stuff, as well as just um, kind of the chance to have something that's quite a strange thing to a lot of people, but means something to you. And that to me is how I feel about my faith and how I feel about pro-wrestling. These are two very important things to me that are strange to other people. And so to me, my job is a chance to write about these things and the intersections between them and hopefully uh, share a little bit of that passion. I know that people were just kind of laughing at me with the uh, the podcast when we released it and stuff like that. But then they actually had a chance to sit down and listen to it and at least gave us enough time to go through it the, the first half before we started breaking down the WrestleMania um, card. <laughs> right. Uh, that really dragged after, after that, I think, but though, that was a cool ex- experiment. Um, so there are a couple of podcast episodes out there that Liam and I recorded along these lines. Um, I think one was called the cross and the turnbuckle or something like that. So um, we, yeah, I've had, it's, it's not often a chance that I've had before, like I said, to write about pro wrestling. It's something I would love to do more of. And the book has definitely inspired me to do more of that, but uh, it's certainly been uh, something that I only get to write a little bit about as it comes up. And um, uh, this is my first chance to really dive right in there and kind of um, go into the nitty gritty of it.
0: I mean, I love that the idea of that podcast, I hope that we can maybe listen to some of that podcast, Jonathan. I feel like that would be really interesting. I love the intersection of your passions with that, but that is a great transition into talking about Gomburu. And when it comes to the All Japan roster split that led to the formation of pro wrestling NOAA, it's very common to find coverage of the event from the NOAA side of things. So what made you want to cover this story, particularly from All Japan's side of the split?
1: I think, as you mentioned, um, we've largely heard about this from the NOAA side. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of which was that the NOAA product was very impressive and was the new thing and the hot thing in... Japanese pro wrestling such as it was in that era. But apart from that, I think a lot of people, um, certainly if you read Dave Meltzer's work, certainly if you read Mick Foley's book, certainly um, if you take up a lot of the threads that I've seen, and certainly I've seen some people on Facebook and on Twitter talk about uh, Matoko Baba, And a lot of people that write about her talk about this dragon lady perception that she had mm-hmm. and point Uh, the finger at her when it comes to the split and sort of suggest that the split was because of her and her actions. And my whole take on that was just that, well, here is someone who was one of the most powerful promoters in uh, wrestling, certainly um, the most powerful female promoter, you know, unless you could think of maybe um, a few others here and there, as far as Linda McMahon and and the likes, but certainly um, here is a, a very notable person who, uh, the finger gets pointed at her, pointed at her, and a lot of the official narrative is that she drove people away from all Japan. Um, so to me, it was interesting to look at the product, to look at the way in which a lot of people had left and kind of left her to pick up the pieces there. And to look at things a little bit from her side and to say, well, what's the story that hasn't been told here? Um, we've heard about this from the Noah side and from Massawa leaving and from the standpoint of those who wanted to leave. But kind of what was it like to be left behind in that sense? Or uh, what was the motivation of the people who stayed behind? So to me, there's an interesting story there about a company that a lot of people were predicting would die. And people were freely and openly saying at the time that all Japan was going to die under those circumstances. And uh, to me, there's something interesting to picking up the pieces and how do you come back from something like that? Um, I think the Noah narrative has been told and told well at that by a lot of English speaking uh, people. I think that Hisame's uh, work is fantastic and gives you a lot of the perspective from uh from myself a little bit from barbara as well. She translated a few of Barbara's uh sort of uh interviews and sort of um she's also writes as I, or, or um runs as I understand the uh the Twitter uh I'm remembering the name of the profile right now the Four Pillars Twitter account um right me yep. updates mm-hmm. that as well and she includes some gifts from Barbara's interviews and things like that. So I don't want to just say that she only gives you the Noah narrative but she's definitely a Noah fan and um definitely goes into what that was like from that side of things. And I'm unaware of any other English language books that deal with the split. And I think that's the gap. And I'm surprised that that hasn't really been the focus of a book before I would, I would have loved to have read uh, someone else has someone else written um, such a book. So I'm hoping that this book is something that inspires other people to take up this story as well. Um, I don't expect that I'll have the last, word on things and i'm hoping other people write about what it was like for all japan and fill in some of those years afterwards the official narrative so often is that 90s all japan was fantastic and that things fell off after the split but i don't i've never really believed that to be entirely the case they've always had fantastic matches and certainly after the split there were some great matches as well so i wanted to look at that as well and why why is that this is almost a lost era.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I do think your book fills an extremely important void. Certainly when I was scrolling through my Twitter, um, the morning that I saw you post that you had released the book, I like stopped and I was like, wait, 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 The, the fact that you were covering it from the perspective of all Japan, I was like, this is, this is really compelling because I had never seen this before in my own just research and trying to learn as a fan, like what happened here and that's what really blew me away and why i was like i have to buy this and i bought it immediately because i needed to know
1: thank you yeah. um, I, I very yeah. much appreciate hearing that it's because you put you, you work on something like this for a while and then you think no one's gonna buy it like i'm gonna put it out there and there'll be a <laughs> nice void uh into which it will enter so that no there's definitely been um some people keen to to read about this i as i say i would have been um yeah had someone else written about this other people have don't get me wrong um chris charlton's book eggshells has fantastic mm-hmm. coverage of the split and goes into that but i would have loved it yeah if anyone does want to take up that challenge of kind of taking this and picking up some of the pieces and some of those um areas that i have of the story i haven't told um that would be great if we could see more um coverage of this and more discussion about the split
0: And I'm super curious, the amount of research you did for this book, it's so evident in every page. How long had Gomberu been in the works before you released it?
1: So officially, I was only working on the book in September. I took some time off from work. We had a very full-on year last year, working remotely, uh, lockdown, and a big kind of uh, synod meeting that we had to cover. So they split the synod meeting into uh, four smaller meetings, but we had to cover that all online. It was like attending four meetings instead of one. And yeah, it was very, very, a lot of labor intensive work went into my work last year. So I got a bit of extra time off, uh, lockdown happened. So I couldn't exactly go anywhere on holidays, but I took a staycation, I guess. Um, and in that time, my wife sort of told me, you know, if you've got any ideas for books, because you've been talking about wanting to write one for a while. And I I hadn't written anything long form since my, I think my PhD, um, i only since my PhD, I'd only written short 350 word articles and that sort of thing. Right. So um, my wife suggested do something with this time. You know, um, I thought I would spend some time writing um, a little bit on this book. I I'd had the idea for years. So I thought I'll, I might write a page and see how that goes. Right. I knocked mm-hmm. out the first chapter overnight kind of thing. It was one of those Times you sit down, you go to bed at three in the morning because you've just been there writing the entire time. And then I went, Well, there's clearly a lot of energy to this. It's clearly something I'm enjoying doing. So that was my two weeks, um, not exactly a restful break, but I worked on the book that entire time. And that was (laughs) where I got most of that work done was that two week break in September. Before that, I I had the idea um, probably a couple of years ago, actually. And, you know, when it occurred to me that no one had really written about, the split before. I think it's fascinating as far as a time when a company is left with two wrestlers on its permanent roster. And how do you come back from that? And the toings and throwings and the business dealings that led to the New Japan working arrangement that All Japan had and these sorts of details. Um, I think that I've probably had the idea for that for a couple of years, but actually, I only worked on that since about September. Um, so until from September till January was the main bulk of that work. And since then it's just been kind of looking at small fixes to the ebook. So anyone that bought the ebook uh, in September, as you did, I've since had some uh, updates to it. So please download the book again, if you want the the full and best experience of that, but I kind of use that as a soft launch for the uh, print version, which is out as of last night. So, uh, yeah, I've just launched the paperback for that now. I kind of used the ebook version to soft launch the book and kind of see how all of that went. So uh, do check that out if um, if you haven't already had a chance to re-download the book if you're one of the early adopters because I've <laughs> fixed some things and added just a tiny bit of extra stuff there.
0: Perfect. And with this sort of topic, and I, and I should have looked this up again before we started talking because I did review Gomberu for Kickout, and I had to look and try to figure out how much, how many years of history you covered in this book. And I think when I did the math, it ended up being something like 72 years of history. So yeah. what did um, your research process look like when you're putting I all wish, of this yeah. together?
1: <laughs> First of all, excellent review, by the way. I think you kind of thank you got the major point that I was largely hoping people would pick up, which is... Here, um, looking at the humanity of, of Matoko Barber and I think she was unfairly maligned in some ways um, in that I think that she's a, a more complex person than a lot of people treat her as. But when it comes to the research process, I wish I had um, some kind of linear process to my research because it was not in any way um, uh, a straightforward process. A lot of it was seeing what was on the official record. So doing a lot of reading of the wrestling observer from the time and going back through the observer and looking at their archives and seeing what the story was that Dave Meltzer and others were writing about and looking at Chris Charlton's work. And he translates a lot of other Japanese work before then looking at Hisame's work and then just asking, what are some of the gaps here and what are some of the other stories to tell or what's missing from this or what would I like to know more about? Um, the other thing there was um, I contacted Fumi Saito pretty early in the process and anything I didn't know, I kind of asked him and we had very long conversations about that. So that was part of it. But my research process, and I say this as someone who completed an honors thesis, and a PhD dissertation a while ago. I wish I had a process because it's, it's chaotic. It wasn't a linear thing. A lot of it was going back and adding to things I'd written months before and that kind of thing. So uh, definitely one where everything that I read became about this book at some point. And certainly there was plenty more. I wish I'd added um, since then there's a lot more stories to tell from this as well, that I didn't get a chance to tell.
0: I can only imagine. And I actually wanted to ask you as well, you you've mentioned a few times your primary sources that you actually interviewed for the book, and that's Chris Charlton, Fumi Saito, and Hisame. How did you, you know, decide on, on those three in particular? I know that you know Chris has a lot of books and he translates um, things from Japanese, which is really helpful. Hisame does a lot of the same work. And then, what was it like working with Fumi Saito in particular, who did cover so much of this wrestling firsthand as a journalist?
1: Oh, so Fumi is amazing. Um, Fumi was on a friend's podcast a couple of years ago. So uh, my friend Dave uh, basically runs the all Japan pro wrestling worldwide fan group and their official podcast, Suwama station and um, the Suwama station podcast had an interview with Fumi going into the split in, I think it was the end of 2020, but it might've been a little bit before that. And in this interview, he basically, uh, did Fumi, he laid out a lot of these nuances that we maybe don't get because as uh, English speakers and as people who, I I, I can only speak for myself here, I do not have a great grasp of Japanese. Um, So a lot of things are lost. And because um, there haven't been a lot of English language texts about what happened um, in the West in particular, we we are missing a lot of the story. We're missing a lot of details. Mm -hmm. So um, Fumi was out there already as someone who was bridging that gap. And I think that's been his contribution to wrestling as a whole is that he, as someone who lived in the U S for some key parts of his life, he was there for the end of his high school and the beginning of his college. He spent the entire, um, I think he did an entire degree in the States. Right. So Mm -hmm. he spent a lot of time there and that was part of his formative years. So to me, he's someone who has bridged the gap between the U S and Japan, as far as some of this information goes. So, um, I reached out to him, after I heard my friend's podcast to say, hey, my, my friend, you, first of all, there's an in there to say that you did a podcast with a friend of mine. Um, but then to sort of say, um, you know, if you'd be uh, willing, I'm working on a book about this subject matter. And I had a couple of questions and uh, I thought he might tell me, sure, no problem. Um, let's talk about that soon or maybe email back and forth a little bit. He said, oh, sure. I'd be happy to talk to you about this. And I said, oh, that's fine shall we set up a time? And he said, well, I'm available to talk now. So when someone like Fumi Saito tells you I'm available to talk now, you drop whatever you you are doing and you go and you do that. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I ended up expecting to speak to him for maybe 20 minutes. And we spoke for an hour and a half that day and just kind of segued and talking about wrestling and what we're watching at the time and that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, look, um, Fumi was pretty key to this book. Um, I didn't think of getting him to write the forward until quite, a while um when we're well underway with the book that i thought he had interesting ideas about where it was that these things started so i thought to kind of halfway through production i kind of thought to ask him to do that and i thought it might be again a, a ways of promoting the book as well people know who he is so now he's very generous with his time um we had some 90 minute interviews uh where we went into some of this material he bridged the gap and kind of plugged the holes as far as a lot of my knowledge goes and a lot of things that i had questions about and he's just uh, released a book as well himself um in japan which is a sociology of pro wrestling and mm-hmm. uh it kind of adapts some of his um magazine columns and things like that unfortunately it's only in japanese so uh I, as soon as someone can translate that, I would love to get a copy of that. It, but yeah, so he's definitely um, some of one of the foremost minds uh, out there as far as uh, Japanese pro wrestling goes and a source that I recommend going to. Um, he has two podcasts and uh, I fully expect to be in touch with him uh, soon about a couple more things that are in the works, but definitely um, someone who's key to the, the whole project, I think.
0: And you actually just made a great point that we are missing a lot of context and details from so many of these stories in Parasu because of the language barrier. So I'm I'm wondering, did you find that your own ideas of what happened in the lead up to the roster split and after changed as you wrote Ganbaru, or did they largely remain the same?
1: Oh, definitely. Um, I think definitely through speaking of through Fumi, there were certain things that I didn't know about or ideas that I had that at least he said we're we're wrong. And um, I didn't know about some of the disputed details until we're getting underway with it. Like there was certainly um, stories that I sort of took for granted as being accurate that he said were not necessarily the case, or if they happened, they didn't happen quite in the way we oftentimes understand. So he maintained, um, for instance, that Misawa and Kawada never (laughs) fell out, that they remained close and that they managed a friendship. And if you look at their entire history, it's definitely a a kind of complex relationship there. And he just, Uh he he described it as they were brothers. And I think anyone that has a close relationship with their brother knows that you still fight all the time, if that's the case. (laughs) So I think that's probably, I I think that's probably the most accurate way of describing this, that they, even if they didn't have a falling out brothers fight, um, they had numerous backstage fights, which was interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I think some of the details about that were challenged. I also uh, saw this assumption that I certainly had, which was, or I took for granted um, the assumption that Masawa and Motoko Baba never got along, um, that they never liked each other. But according to Funi, at least Motoko Baba was something of an adoptive mother to Masawa. And so they always had a complex relationship. It was not as simple as they hated one another and never got along. And um, so again, that's interesting. These relationships are not things that we can reduce down to single sentence statements to summarize their entire experience together. And uh, clearly there was a time when Misawa um, and Kawada, for instance, were not working together, but uh, definitely a, a, one of the major things that has come through from reviews from people who've read the book, um, one of the big stories there is that that was not necessarily the case that they had a falling out and things of that nature. So there are little things along the way like that, that kind of changed um, as I went along and kind of challenged my perceptions
0: I can imagine. And we're actually going to talk a little bit more about Misawa and Kawada's relationship later on. Um, that was actually one of the things that I messaged you about, like right after I finished reading the book, yeah, because I had yeah, so many questions, yeah. but I'm also super curious, what are the ethics of writing about historical figures in wrestling, especially in the context of Gomberu?
1: So the thing about writing this book um, that really got me, um, so I showed my wife the book as i'm working on it and she read the last chapter and she went wow that is sad because at the end the two protagonists die um basically masawa and uh, uh matoko baba are both no longer with us these are the two central figures to the book so right from the get-go i'm writing about people who have passed away and not a long time ago at that we're talking about uh in matoko baba's case she passed away i believe was it 2018 it was Not a long time ago, right? Yeah, Yeah, 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the case of Masawa, uh, he passed away in 2009. So between those two people, that's uh, two people that have passed away relatively recently who are not here to defend themselves. They cannot go on the public record and say things anymore. And so we're left with just the words they left us with and the things that they said publicly. Um, They can be misrepresented. They um, are not able to change public recorder to kind of uh, correct things. So with that right away, um, that to me was an ethical challenge because I thought that I didn't want to take Matoko Barber's side in the split. And I definitely don't want this to be a book that is perceived as being pro All Japan or pro Noah. But in writing about this, I kind of wanted to be balanced and to give her some chance um, to go into a little bit about what it was that she was thinking at the time of the split. And uh, obviously that's a challenge because I don't want to then assume um, too much there and to kind of fill in the gaps. Um, there is a bit of a gap there in terms of what her thought process was, but I definitely think that writing about uh, people have passed away is a tricky ethical area. And I think um, to be as fair as possible and to include as much of what they actually said as possible. And um, obviously with that, there's a challenge because, we're dealing with translated interviews as well. But um, something that I'm interested in certainly is the notion that both Matoko Barber and Masawa were dealing with their own grief after Giant Barber died. And I think that might've played a part in the split. I'm not 100% certain as to whether or not that was the case, but people act in funny ways and do unexpected things, especially when they're grieving. And I think that grief may have, Played some part in the thought process and in uh, certainly for Motoko Baba. Um, for her to, if you look at the statements that she made, um, she said a lot of things about how she, uh, that all Japan was Baba and Bob was all Japan, and to go against uh, all Japan was to go against Baba, um, or that she felt that she was getting guided by Baba after he passed away. Um, she would, according to Hisame's account anyway, um, she would light a candle and ask Barbara to blow it out if he thought she was making the wrong decision. And so um, there is a grieving widow and I, I tried to do justice to that as well. I think, um, again, big challenge writing about people who have passed away and ensuring it represented them fairly.
0: I really do think you did that. I want to say that a strength of your work that really comes through is that you you do remain very neutral about... about explaining all sides of the split while also not falling into what has become this really common trap of discussing Mrs. Baba's role in the split from a very misogynistic lens, which has become really common in Western media and accounts of what happened. And you can be critical of decisions that she made without it taking on that tone of misogyny, which I think that you, you do rather well in just staying very neutral. And I do appreciate that And I think I'm about to paraphrase from part of the book, but really at the heart of this matter, and you demonstrate this very well, this is a family drama that gets played out in public. And that's what I found to be really the most relatable thing. If you take away the wrestling, you take away the wrestling industry and all of those things that make the story incredibly unique and different from that perspective, this is a really heart-wrenching family drama that unfortunately gets played out in this very public way through the press with all of those added pressures. And you demonstrate that really well. And it's kind of, it left me with this really deep sense of sadness for- everyone involved because even with sort of you know if you take the story and you lead into misawa forming noah that's a big triumph in a lot of ways right noah goes on to you know enjoy several years of great success through that and then all japan also rebounds as we know from this but there's still a not there's still this rather the sense of i think deep sadness over the fractures in a lot of these relationships that we're sort of left with
1: yeah definitely i mean motoko baba um was a paradox herself. You know, she's a very complicated woman. Um, She apparently wanted to get out of the wrestling business, right? Like she clearly wanted to sell all Japan in 2002. when she was convinced to do that. And then I would have thought that then she would have stayed right out of wrestling, but then she did these produce shows in 2015. Like she actually produced a couple of shows uh, with some all Japan talent in them. And she got involved with all Japan in 2014. I think it was so, um, in the le- the years leading into her death she was involved here and there with the wrestling industry for someone who supposedly wanted no part of it anymore so she's a complicated woman and I think um, someone who um, has a lot of depth to her personality that we kind of miss out on a little bit you know we, we hear about how she was supposedly an abrasive person who and I'm sure she did a lot of things that led to the split and I'm sure that she was, culpable in that sense she's definitely got a lot of people offside especially from the native roster but a lot of the gaijin talents especially stan hansen loved her and thought that she was very kind and um, considerate of them and you know flying in turkey for the american wrestlers to celebrate thanksgiving that's not the actions of this callous woman for sure um and i definitely think that she's a complex figure. And I hope that, uh, and I appreciate you saying that, that I did justice to that because I think that was part of the, the goal of the work at least was to kind of show that there's a complicated situation here that we don't know the full extent of, and perhaps may never know some of the ins and outs, um, unless we're there. So, uh, yeah, definitely. I, I wanted to kind of go to the complexity of this and of their relationship.
0: To your point too, I'll tell a quick story as an aside that I've actually gotten from Namichi Marafuji's, um, his, his biography, Heir to the Ark, he talks about a very specific Matoko Baba memory of his that he really likes. He's um, They're out with the Babas. I believe Misawa was present as well. And he turned around because Mrs. Baba was calling to him and she hands him a handful of change so that he could go to the arcade and play at the arcade. Awesome. He was probably 18 or 19 years old. He was really just a very brand new trainee to all japan but that is his like best memory of his yeah. time with Matoko baba you know before everything happened and they headed toward the split really so but that's something that he he remembers he he wanted to tell it in his book that's like something that's very important to him so it just it speaks to what you're saying that she was a a complicated figure but there's there's nuance there there's a, a human being there
1: and i mean the lives of the new, the old Japan, um, trainees, especially were so tough and it was oftentimes that they were so, um, enmeshed in the training that they didn't get to go out a whole lot. So for her to do that, that's a pretty big gesture, even though it seems like a very small thing. Um, and yeah, for an 18 or 19 year old, especially that's a lot to go through. So yeah, no, that, yeah, it's a kind of fantastic anecdote. And I think it kind of goes to, um, uh, to the kind of person that she was, that she was a very generous person. Um, was the, was his uh, biography translated officially into English, or was it kind of uh, no? Translation this is actually
0: advanced? this is something that I actually got from Hisame's blog. Yeah. She has translated the first um, several chapters, which I do recommend people look for if they're interested. It's a great way to get a sense of you know what's in his book. She has not completed the book, but um, it is a great read if you can just get through the first couple of chapters. She is available.
1: She's definitely also done the same thing with Masawa's book um as well at least for a couple of chapters here and there but yeah definitely um something i'll have to check out because yeah again it's one of these um things that if someone could put some effort into translating these books and bringing them to a western audience i think there'd be a market for that and i'd certainly love to see and would buy a whole lot of these so maybe if they could do it gradually so i don't spend my entire bank account on them would be good but yeah there's definitely (laughs) a market for, for these stories from the japanese side of things and from um for Western market at that.
0: Oh absolutely. I think it would save us a whole lot of time and money to be sure. And um, on that note, let's let's switch gears and go right into one of those questions I want to ask you about Misawa and Kawada. because like we were saying,, yeah. um, this is something I wanted to ask you more about specifically because this viewpoint is so different than what has been largely reported in Western media. And um, I think these two actually have a rather tragic story, especially as we head toward the end of Misawa's life and the end of Kawada's uh, career. And um, I remember reading this in Gombaru Fumi's um, take on their relationship at the time of the split. And I put my phone down because I was reading it through the Kindle app. And I had to sit there and think like, this is not what I've yeah. known for years. And I had to really sit with this. So I'm just <laughs> super fascinated, you know, you, you've talked a little bit about what, you know, how you felt about that and how that challenged some of your beliefs, but does Fumi's view, which is again, so different than what has been widely reported changed how you view Misawa and Kawada's relationship at this time?
1: Most definitely. Yeah. Um, because Fumi was fairly insistent at that, right? He wasn't someone who kind of uh, just says things randomly. He was quite insistent that these were two brothers that um, had remained brothers to some extent at least right um but there was definitely a complicated process there especially after that match between them in Noah um when uh, Kawada went over the time limit um and mm-hmm. that Misawa believed that he had done that deliberately I think again a spat between brothers I think there's still some degree of commitment there to maintaining the relationship but I don't think it would have been Easy and certainly it was a relationship like any other with its ups and downs and um, definitely I, I changed my views about what their um, kind of a, a, a dynamic was um, based on some of the comments that Fumi made. Um, but yeah, as I say, he's definitely someone who was there at some key points and at least um and he he's quite aware as Fumi that wrestlers like anyone else will try to tell you their side of events and try to twist them and kind of spin them a particular way. He said, uh oh, the boys would come to me and he kind of." Rolls his eyes a bit and said, and they would, you know, tell me gossip and tell me the rumors. And just like anyone else, they get involved in this stuff. They want to kind of be a part of the room mill and kind of um, to tell a, a journalist that who was there. And um, I don't think they're as friendly towards journalists now with the backstage setup. He said that he had a bit more, not free reign, but certainly a bit more ability to walk around than he would now. But, um, definitely he's someone who can still get backstage at all Japan for wrestling events. So he hasn't misrepresented them to that extent that um, people are still happy to have him around and admire him as a journalist. So he's um, quite willing to stake his reputation on some of these dynamics being more complex than we thought. And that, yeah, that definitely um, challenged uh, how I viewed in turn Misawa and Kawada and the kind of brotherhood that they had.
0: Incredible insight to have. And I do just want to mention here, because you mentioned specifically what happened at Noah's Destiny show in 2005, and I just want to plug Dylan Fox and WH Park's excellent Kawada Biography podcast episode for the Long and Winding Royal Road series through post-wrestling. If you're listening and you haven't listened to that episode, please do. There's a lot of fantastic information there. Dylan and WH had some translated excerpts from Kawada's book, which really helps understand Kawada's mindset and things about his life but they talk about that, that moment between them at Destiny, because that's where it occurs. And you see Misawa storm off in the middle of Kawada speaking. And that's the last match they have. And then Misawa passes away in 2009. Kawada wrestles for about another year. And then he stops having lost his passion for it entirely after Misawa has, has passed away. And he doesn't really have like a retirement show. Like there's you know, Kawada hasn't really done any of that since about 2010. So it's just really fascinating to think about the information in the context that Fumisaito was able to give you and, and just think about the the nuance here and the, the depth of their relationship and how even with the, the extreme ups and downs of this relationship, I mean, they were even at odds when they were younger in all Japan, they had um, their their seniors were rivals. I mean, you had Tenru with Kawada and then you had Jumbo um, with Misawa. And so you had that as well. And it's just incredible to reflect on that new information with this time period and try to kind of put the, the pieces together of this.
1: I mean, certainly if you look at the uh, Yahoo News uh, Japan story covering Misawa's funeral, they had a picture of Kawada arriving and it's, it's just a devastating image. Um, he looks ashen. He looks um, devastated. And someone as tough as Kawada and someone who we're, we're used to seeing um, as tough as he was in the ring and as violent as he was, um, to see him as upset as he is in that image, it's clear that he's lost someone incredibly special to him. A very complicated relationship, though. And um, definitely they had those ups and downs. And um, definitely I think that... Um, it's interesting chris charlton in eggshells does um suggest that uh, they were still open to a rematch with one another which is where i got that for the book and so somehow you have a situation where there's some heat there but they still at some level um want to do that again um i never got a chance to as well um which is kind of the real hor- horrific part about that um Dylan also did a fantastic review of the book. He recorded a podcast episode about it. That's free on their Patreon, on the Eastern Lariat Patreon. That um, goes into some details that I missed and into some of the story that I left off. And um, it's an excellent kind of piece to sort of unravel a few of those extra details.
0: Highly recommend everyone check that out. Dylan does some incredible work. And now, Jonathan, I want to ask you a question that's probably a very loaded question, but in your opinion, could the 2000 roster split have been avoided or was this conflict inevitable?
1: So in considering that, Fumi Saito's point of view is that it was inevitable, that there was no changing that, um, because he believed that Misawa was kind of like a kid in all Japan, that Motoko Baba was something of an adoptive mother to him. Uh, Giant Bob was definitely an adoptive father to Masawa and for him to form prayer wrestling Noah was kind of like a kid leaving home that he needed to take this step in order to grow up in a professional sense. He needed to leave all Japan and needed to form his own company. And um, in that sense, Fumi is of the opinion that it was utterly inevitable. I don't know. I think that if they were to stay together, if there was to be a, sort of remnant there. If, um, if all Japan was to stay together as it was and avoid the split, you kind of then would need some kind of intermediary between Baba and Masawa. Mm -hmm. And I would not want to be that person that would have to go between (laughs) them, but maybe there could be some way of the relationship, um, being held together. Uh, if there was some kind of way of them coming up to some form of compromise, because, Barber was of the opinion that budget was limited, that wrestling had peaked, that after uh, Giant Barber's death that they had to keep the company together and they had to uh, kind of maintain a status quo where Misawa saw a need to bring in a uh, kind of new uh, version of what they were doing to up the production values, to modernize the contracts and all that sort of stuff. So there has to be some way between those two points of view, um, perhaps whereby uh, Misawa might be limited in what he could spend budget wise, but could nonetheless book however he wanted or something like that. But it would have required a compromise and a lot of work on both sides. So I can see why that did not happen. Um, so I'm sorry to be sitting on the fence once again here and, <laughs> and saying, I don't know. Um, I'd love to think that maybe uh, the split could have been avoided, but ultimately what happened there happened there. And I think we did get um, as Dylan Fox points out, I think we got an extra wrestling promotion out of it we got a third viable company we definitely have the big three now which um i think serves us quite well in terms of the amount of wrestling that we get nowadays um in terms of three excellent companies that produce very different forms of wrestling um i think that the production values are quite different between current contemporary all japan and noah but i definitely think that we are better for having the two different companies um as much as it can sometimes hurt to see all Japan struggle, uh, in a business sense, it's good that we, we got Noah out of the entire thing, I think. So that's my, my non-answer to that question. I don't know.
0: (laughs) No, that's very fair. And I mean, I would have to, I would kind of have to agree. It's a hard thing to, uh, to disagree with from that standpoint. Who do you think benefited from the split the most and who benefited from it the least?
1: So I think definitely Kawada benefited a lot. Um, he went from being one of the four pillars and being uh sort of a star that was in Misawa's shadow to being the undisputed ace of all japan um it's a bit sad the way in which that had to happen but um definitely he managed to realize his star potential he had that fantastic run as triple crown champion from 2003 to 2005 he uh was out of Misawa's shadow in a lot of ways uh we got that we also had the chance to sort of see uh some of these other stars that kind of rose up uh, through all Japan at the time. And I think for Misawa, this was a big thing. This was a chance for him to just show the, the former pro wrestling he always wanted to show and for good or for bad and everything in between, I think we've got a fantastic and comp- compelling vision of what pro wrestling could be through Noah. And um, so I think I would say Kawada and Misawa both benefited a good deal. I think Matoko Baba lost a lot, but in the end, um, I think she ultimately was able to revive the company and keep it alive uh, long enough that she could sell it. I think that she managed to get out of the business in the end in some way, um, but clearly loved the business enough to want to go back and to do those produce shows. That's a, a big question for me. I, I sort of wish I could ask her that as to why she did that. But no, definitely I would say the, the people that gained the most were Kawada and Masawa. And I think Matoko Baba lost the most in the end there.
0: And post-split, this is one of the more interesting... Stories you tell, I think, in the book Post Split, Mrs. Baba makes a few critical decisions to save all Japan, and that includes calling Genitiru Tenru and asking him to return to the promotion. Does Tenru ever make amends with and return to all Japan without this conflict?
1: See, I think um, it—it's very sad because I think it did take Giant Baba passing away in order for that to happen. Baba was adamant that as long as he was alive, Tenru would never return. So I think from that standpoint, it could have happened after Barber passed away. I think the split definitely sped a lot of processes up and gave a kind of uh, emergency for him to slide into there. And I think um, gave him an opportunity as well. Um, But definitely, I, I think I could have seen it happen sooner or later. He's a journeyman. He's a wrestler that has bounced around a lot of different promotions throughout his career and someone who... I think would have been able to put um, past things aside and to slide back in there if he saw good business and if he saw this opportunity that he eventually had anyway, which was to go up against Kawada. I think that was another fascinating thing there for him to work against uh, someone who had previously been a mentor to and a tag team partner too. So I think, yeah, I think I could see it happening. If we're talking hypotheticals, I could definitely see him eventually going back to all Japan um, if the business sense was there.
0: And you've alluded to this, but I did want to ask about this as well because it is pretty funny to me. Um, in some ways. But bringing in Keiji Muto is another call that Mrs. Baba made during that time period. Muto eventually becomes president of All Japan in 2002, which shows just how much Motoko Baba trusted him and his vision for the company. And that falls just a little bit outside the scope of Gombaru But you do point out that Mudo makes a lot of changes to All Japan's presentation that does end up modernizing the promotion. So it is a bit of irony. And what can we kind of take away from this, if anything, especially when we're thinking about how Misawa wanted to modernize All Japan. And that was not something that Mrs. Baba was going to be okay with. Yeah.
1: yeah. So... A point that fumi made that i don't know if i captured so well from the quote that i included there was that um he came in did keiji muto with a particular vision for all japan that he sort of sold Barber on which was that he was going to keep giant barbers vision alive as much as he could and according to saito from our interview he sort of suggested that after the deal was done and as he got underway he actually made changes that she was not anticipating so According to Saito anyway, um, the deal that they made would have been one to preserve all Japan as it was and that Keiji Muto actually ended up changing things more than she expected, um, at least when they are initially talking about this. So definitely, I think um, one thing there is that change is inevitable. Ultimately, there had to be something to change the presentation and to adapt all Japan. And I think the way the wrestling industry is is if you're not changing and adapting, fans will get sick of the same old thing and will move on. I think this had already happened to some extent. Certainly by 1999, the whole concept of the four pillars was one that had been strained, and I think they're already leaning toward elevating Akiyama. So, definitely, you saw there changes were afoot anyway. But I think ultimately, the lesson we can take away from this is that change is inevitable if you wish to survive. And I think that ultimately, all Japan would have changed no matter what happened anyway. And so I think there, um, that might have been something that she should have embraced earlier. But yeah, definitely she was uh, surprised by some of the changes that were made in the end there. Uh, definitely it was something that she did not anticipate when they made that deal. Um, Muto made more radical changes than Baba was anticipating, certainly in the end.
0: It does sound a bit like KG Muto. So
1: <laughs> it, it sounds sense. like wrestling wrestlers in general. I mean, Muto <laughs> is a carny just like any of the rest of them. And <laughs> I think that you know it, it um you kind of have to love him for that though. And certainly, um, I imagine you were you were devastated when you saw um uh the press conference earlier. But
0: oh my worst, uh, literal worst nightmare. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so upset.
1: At 59, he's uh continuing to wrestle and uh someone who i i can't imagine how much pain that would involve he says that that's um less pain than he was in at the time of all this so when the old japan events were happening he says that was the most painful uh time in his Ingram career with his uh knees being as bad as they were and i have a hard time believing that he's in more pain now that or more uh, less pain now than he was back then i think that's again him being his carny. but you kind of have to love him i mean it's a complicated thing, but uh, I think you kind of have to love Murdour.
0: I'm I'm definitely in agreement with you there. He is nothing if not extremely and endearingly charming. Um, but switching gears, especially now if we're talking about Mudo, we'll switch gears and we'll talk yeah. more about contemporary All Japan for a moment. I think one of the lessons in Gambaru is that this is a promotion that perseveres even in the face of you know impending yeah. doom. So I'm not necessarily saying that all Japan right now is facing impending doom, but do you draw any comparisons between all Japan at the time of the split to the all Japan of today in terms of how they prevail through periods of crisis, even if it is, like I said, on a lesser scale?
1: Sure, definitely. Um, The way that I think they got through the split in the first place was here you have a horrendous situation that you're faced with. So to get through that you need to change perception you need to change what people are talking about you need to kind of drop a new a new news item for fans to focus on so they managed to successfully change the narrative from all japan is going to go out of business to all japan and new japan are working together now and here's Tenru. um right now we had a few people leave at the end of last year and that's not a good look and that's apparently going to some problems that the company is having with its talent and with how people are feeling backstage. Definitely. I've read that. And again, it's rumor. um, And I'd like to hear more about it, but definitely it's been rumored that Tajiri is one of the controversial figures backstage that some people um, have hard feelings towards. And um, as a Tajiri fan from way back, and I mentioned that, or Fumi mentions that in the book, um, you know, it's something that uh, clearly there are people who have very strong opinions about him, and clearly there's some backstage turmoil there, and some people have left. And that being the case, I, I do think that all Japan, to some extent, at least tried to and attempted to change the narrative when they dropped that huge bombshell. Uh, on their first show of the year on the 2nd of January at the Currican Hall show when they unveiled that they'll be returning to the Budokan for the first time in 18 years. I think that was an attempt there to try to kind of shift the attention away from the people that have left and to attempt something big, at least. I do hope that they're successful at that. I, um, I do think that a huge Budokan Hall show is something that they need to build towards. It's not going to be easy. It will be hard to see them getting a big crowd for that um, with contemporary old japan but i definitely think there's a comparison to be made between them at at least attempting a big news item and attempting to do something to get fans talking i know that if borders were open if i was able to as much as i can clear my schedule with a two-year-old and with (laughs) everything i'm doing right now to be able to go over to japan um, for that event would be amazing i definitely think it's got fans talking um it's obviously a, a lot fewer fans now than were back at the time of the split at least in terms of the level of hype is not the same um all japan twitter is a lot more quiet than new japan is um i'd probably uh think that the company is on a much smaller scale as you mentioned but i definitely see them at least trying big things i hope that they're successful at getting a good crowd for that show i hope they get to return to the Budokan. i think it's a big deal for them
0: And a common thing that you'll hear now among wrestling fans is that Noah's golden era, which we define as 2000 to about 2009, was the true continuation of Giant Baba's All Japan. Do you see anything of Giant Baba's All Japan in All Japan today? And if not, whose influence do you see the most on the promotion?
1: I definitely do. I I think there are some uh, strands there that, that remain. I'd say at the end of the book that the style of wrestling is probably what I would consider to be sort of new King's road in the sense that they don't have the same head drops. They don't have the same crazy bumps, but what they have is a sort of uh, similar enough kind of psychology of building the match up to a a crescendo. I think you see some crazy bumps still. I definitely, um, the match more recently between uh, Honda and Miyahara uh, where they decided the new triple crown champion, they had an apron bump. They had a few things like that, but it's more measured style than what you saw in giant barbers day um francisco francisco francesco akira has basically said that the training methods are similar to giant barbers day that if you visit the dojo that what kind of uh, methods they use now and the training style is very similar to what that barber had and uh definitely if you look at things like the uh ways in which they promote the triple crown and uh the world tag titles and they talk about the kind of history behind them and the Men who have previously held them a lot of the time, they'll harken back to those days of the four pillars. And definitely, you see some of these moves that uh, you see the wrestlers use. You know, when um, Zeus was doing that great run in the triple, not the triple crown, sorry, but the uh, Champions Carnival, mm-hmm. the Champion Carnival a few years ago, uh, when he won, I believe it was 2020, um, he was using the Misawa face lock, kind of a callback to one of the greats from Barber's day. So, I definitely think that stylistically, you see a couple of points there. Uh, where they are hearkening back to the days of King's Road. And I definitely think from the way they train people, it seems as though they still have Giant Barber in mind. Um, Mm -hmm. Definitely, he still continues to cast a huge shadow to this day as far as they still hold memorial events. I'm sure they'll continue to hold a Giant Barber memorial every year. And All Japan are the the biggest contributor to that. So um, definitely, I, I don't think that Noah is the only continuation of giant Barber's legacy, though I do think that Noah can play some part in that. I think that um, there was a comment that was made um, by Mark Pickering, and I think Issa may has made the same point, which is that in some ways Barber is the grandfather of Noah. Mm-hmm. If you think as Barber as being kind of like Masao's father, and Masao is the father of Noah, so I definitely think they can definitely uh be a part of Massau, uh, part of barber's legacy there and part of the the wider family there um fumi saito made the comment to me that pro wrestling noah and all japan are a bit like two different restaurants started by chefs that learn how to make food the same way mm-hmm. um in that they're quite different promotions but they have a similar enough style and that the wrestlers kind of have that heritage so definitely there's a shared heritage there and um one that i hope they celebrate a bit more i'd love to see some more joint work between the two of them it seems unlikely right now but uh all japan uh have worked with noah in the past they were successful uh new japan and noah have had that recent show which seemed so unlikely at the time so there's some hope that the two of them can work together and um, celebrate this legacy
0: we think about even 2020 we were supposed to get Sugira in the champion, champion champion carnival i believe
1: that lineup looked amazing right yeah, like the, the people that were going to bring in for that
0: so it's, you know, the pandemic, it makes things so difficult, but hopefully we'll be able to get back to a, a real working relationship, or at least working towards one. And I'm really glad that you you brought up the King's Road style, because there's something in Gomberu I wanted to mention. Uh, Richard Aslinger, who rest, wrestled as Richard Slinger during his career, he likened wrestling the King's Road style to painting a portrait, and he cites three tenets of the style being snug, believable, incredible. He also said that the era was one of a kind. I don't think it can ever be recreated, which really had me thinking about this. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on Slinger's stance that the Kings Road style is effectively dead when we reflect on where we are in modern day Parosu?
1: I think there are parts of it that are still remaining. And definitely if you look at that match that we saw at the, on New Year's Day at the Brutican between Goshi Ozaki and Nakajima, Mm-hmm. That one very much to me at least seemed like a King's Road style match. If you look at some of the big bumps, if you look at, in fact, at one point they even got onto the, um, the rampway and they had a bump off the rampway to the floor. That to me called back to, and I don't know if this was deliberate, but to my mind, they were calling back to Misawa against Kobashi when they did that. You know, the, the famous or infamous ramp bump that they had. Um, it looked a little bit safer than when um, Masawa took that bump, but yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely they had that moment. And I thought this is a callback. This is them very much embracing that King's Road style, or at least referring to it in this match. So look, I think that in some ways there are things about the King's Road style they would do well to move away from. There were dangerous head bumps. And I think that things got to quite a, a point where, You saw some insane uh, bumps that took place. We saw the toll that that took on these wrestlers' bodies. It certainly took its toll on Misawa, who felt the need to fight through pain as he did and to carry the company both behind the scenes and in the ring. Um, That I think that there are aspects to it in terms of the approach to bumps and some of the dangers that they embraced that maybe they would do well to get away from and to have that slightly safer style. But... As far as that went, um, I definitely think that there are at least aspects there um, you know, that they've retained. I definitely think that we see the King's Road in the way that Noah works and in the way that All Japan works as well. I don't think it's been abandoned wholesale. I don't think it's the same as it was back then, though, as far as the amount of bumps that these people take and the head drops and so on and so forth. I think they've definitely switched that up. And I, I think that's probably for the better.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. And I'm wondering if you would also maybe agree with my line of thinking in that, when I think of King's Road, what really comes to mind first, even before the, you know, dropping people on their heads, is the storytelling. To me, the storytelling that happens in 90s, All Japan in particular, is some of the most effective and emotional storytelling in all of, in all of wrestling. And I think that that storytelling, it, it goes even a little bit beyond just what moves you're stringing together to form what we know as a wrestling match. And I think that what Noah and then parts of All Japan do really well is bring you that type of storytelling, and so that to me is just the evolution of that King's Road style, if that makes sense.
1: Definitely. I mean, if you look at uh, that match that Jake Lee had with Kento Miyara last year for their anniversary show, uh, I think it was Champion Night Two, a Champions Night Two at uh, Ota Ward Gym. It was a one-hour-long draw. And I saw Twitter light up and all these people were hating that. They hated the result. They thought that was bad for Jake Lee. And they thought that this was um, kind of a, a terrible result. And um, I rewatched it and I was thinking about how Kawada could not beat Misawa for so long. They had that long story they told where mm-hmm. he came up short in the title run, in the title matches. Um, I think tell- they were at least trying to tell the same story between Jake Lee and Kento um, mm-hmm. that, kento is kind of jake lee's white whale he's someone that uh that jake hasn't been able to beat and so i think through that they were kind of doing this storytelling this kind of story of he can't beat him so it's a long-term goal for him to finally beat kento and when he does it will be a big deal i think that's um something they've taken directly from the misawa kawada story and the misawa kabashi story that they had that form of, um, you know, that long arc where you have, you can't just watch one match. You have to watch every match in the series to get the full story. So I, I think that's where they were going with that before Jake's injury. I hope they can still tell us that story that one day Jake can beat Kento for the belt. Um, I, I, that might just be my head cannon here. And I, I don't know if that's what they meant to do maybe, um, but I definitely hope that's where they were going with that. And that was my reading of it when the match was over that they, i still trying to establish that. And yeah, I think it'll be a big moment. I hope they get to maybe tell that story in the Bruticon um, of Jake finally beating Kento or at least do that one day. Um, so yeah, I hope that storytelling remains. I hope that's where they're going with that.
0: Well, I think Jake is coming back. I think the date we got was March like 21st or something. So we are about a little over a month away. So I'm hoping that we can get Jake back on track because really I mean, it would if, be...
1: If he does come back then, it's um, certainly... I'm trying to think of what the show was. Was that the Currican Hall show? Was that another show? I can't remember the venue they announced it, but they've definitely announced Jake Lee's return at this point. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I hope that he can plug into a big storyline there. Certainly everything that's happened uh, while he's been away, there's a lot of potential there for him to um, have some kind of implication for the story they're telling with his faction and everything that's happened since he left. So yeah, I definitely look forward to it. I think he's got potential. Um, I think they need to get behind him in a big way.
0: I completely agree with that. I think, yeah, we have a running thing where every episode we've released for Kickout, we'll have talked about Jake Lee at least once. So I'm glad thank to you, have you for obliging you me. That. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for obliging me, Jonathan. Um, switching gears entirely, you source or you cite rather a lot of great books in Ganbaru, but which one would you recommend most to your listeners?
1: So, um, there's a couple there that are are great. I think the first one there has to be Chris Charlton's book, Eggshells. Um, Mm -hmm. it's a story about up to a point in 2018, every major show that had taken place at the Tokyo Dome, including the empty arena match where Uh, DDT hosted uh, I think it was uh, I can't remember who he was up against but uh, it was definitely uh, one of those wild uh, kind of appearances there uh, as far as the king goes and as far as the ways in which he tells some fantastic kind of uh, comedy uh, stories there it was I'm having a mind blank here as to who Minaro Suzuki's opponent for that show was Mm-hmm. But there was an empty arena match between Minoru Suzuki and someone from DDT. And this is featured in the book. This is how detailed Chris Charlton has been. Um, basically, uh, it goes into not just the matches themselves, but the backstory to them. And in telling the backstory, he goes into everything in terms of the corporate hijinks, the um, the, the split itself, some details uh, that he's translated from interviews. He translated an explosive interview that Masawa had on Japanese TV as a way of contextualizing the split. So if you want to understand the split better, I think that's a great source and one that I went back to time and time again. Um, Obviously I think everyone's probably read by now Mick Foley's first book, have a nice day. Um, If they haven't, it's an older book. It came out in 1999, but he talks about his all Japan run, which was something I didn't know a lot about. He goes into a little bit about what the country was like for him um, to tour with. So uh, that's a fantastic book that I think kind of doesn't need me to commend it. I think a lot of people read it already, but that was one that I, I returned to a few times. So uh, in the short time that he, he devotes to it is interesting. Um, so probably uh, those two books off the top of my head. The other book is uh, I, I kind of recommend advisedly is Stan Hansen's book. Yeah. Um, the Last Outlaw, which that one is editorially a little bit of a mess. Um, it's not exactly a linear book. It kind of one minute he's talking about his time in Kansas city. And the next he's talking about his time in Texas and then Japan before cycling back to his early years. Um, but if you can get past that, it tells some great anecdotes there's some wonderful details that we didn't have before. And I, the, the number of times that I quote that book, I think speaks to how good it is. Um, I don't think I captured everything from there that you'd want to take away. There's a lot of great takeaways from that that one. So I'd say Stan Hansen's book. You asked me for one book, I've given you three there, but <laughs> consider that to be the triple crown, I guess, as far as uh, the books <laughs> to take away from that one.
0: That's totally okay. I actually, the Stan Hansen book is something that was on my list for like way too long. And then reading your book is what made me buy it. So that was helpful for me. So thank you, Jonathan.
1: I did speak briefly to his editor, um, to get permission. So, um, in order to put out a commercial work, I needed to get copyright permission from a number of these different, um, editors. So the way that American law works is that would me quoting them would be considered fair use. Mm-hmm. Um, in Australia, it's a bit different. It's uh, a lot more strict And the courts have interpreted these cases a lot more narrowly. So if I'm in academia, I can quote anyone, provided I cite my source properly, right? Mm -hmm. In commercial work, if I'm quoting someone, then I'm running the risk of copyright coming up. So I wrote to all these editors and these writers, and I just said, look, can I I quote from your book? This is the quote. Um, So yeah, I, I did speak to the editor of that book a little bit he he should be glad to hear that I've made at least one sale for him from that whole thing. Um, if ever has oh to deal gosh. with him again.
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's very good. At least I'm glad that we got to mention it here. And you also do this great thing where you recommended five matches that you call yeah. forgotten classics at the end of the book. And that was to give readers some additional context around the split and also post split, which match would you recommend that listeners put on right after this podcast and which is your personal favorite
1: in keeping with my tradition of, um, not directly answering questions here (laughs) um i actually wouldn't recommend a match there's actually another video i recommend people watch after they listen to this Mm -hmm. and after they read the book which is a music video on uh on youtube uh shared by a guy by name of hans mir um and that's just simply uh all japan pro wrestling pro wrestling noah split music video Mm -hmm. or something like this um, basically he did a visual kind of presentation of the entire split with some of the key footage from the time so right around the time of Giant Barber's uh, memorial to running all the way up to the match between Kawada and Misawa and um, basically it's a kind of set to the tune of of all things uh, Cat Stevens song um, Wide World which uh, just it's hard to describe and do justice but you can see the comments on that video um, that Hans Meer put together um, where basically everyone that saw it says, Oh my God, I'm crying right now. Um, he does a lot of justice to the, the history behind the his split. He kind of describes it all very well without using a single word and just setting it to music. So I recommend checking out. Yeah. The um, all Japan Pro Wrestling Noah split music video by Hans Um, in terms of the actual match recommendations. Um, the first one that comes to mind and the one that I'd recommend the most from that list would be Kawada against Tenryu. Um, mm-hmm. because when you think about the split and you think about all Japan having this prevailing narrative in, at the time of this company is going to die and everyone expecting an upcoming show to be their last show. Um, this was an event where all of a sudden people were talking about that match instead of, all that that mess and it just showed some of the potential that the company still had to produce great wrestling classics and um that match between Kawada and Tenryu kind of stood out to me at least um I think it was rated by Dave Meltzer only four stars I think it's a little bit higher but I try not to get too much into into that in the book um so I recommend that match and one other match that I recommend again you ask for one I'm giving you three different videos to watch no here. I love um, it it's great. 2005 um Kawada had a title defense against Kojima so so Satoshi Kojima against Kawada I can't remember the arena that they fought in but in um 2005 the triple crown match that they had was an amazing match that I think was very much in the King's Road style and I think one that just showed that all Japan could still have these amazing classics despite Noah being the promotion that everyone was talking about at the time I think um the 2005 match between uh, Kojima and Kawada kind of, yeah, that, well, to my mind at least goes down as one that is worth checking out. That's not on that list because it falls outside of the, the time frame I gave myself. Uh, you mentioned that I sort of covered, I think 70 something years of history or whatever it was, but mm-hmm. I, I mostly focused on 2000, 2002. And I think um, mostly because that was the time limit time of the split and time of Barbara's, um sort of uh, focal point in the company but I had to touch on that other stuff to contextualize it. So um, definitely some other things fell outside of the scope of that, um, which I want to follow up at some point, but for sure um, the, those, three ma- those three videos are worth checking out as, as far as that goes.
0: I extended your coverage into the Akiyama and Marafuji match. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. which you do touch on and it's great.
1: Yeah, that's ah, uh, that's a, a great match that I think I couldn't not talk about the split without touching on that as well. And H- hisumi wrote that up so so beautifully. I thought that um that particular column that she wrote about Akiyama and um, the kind of backstory that he had that year and the backstory that Marifuji had from that year. And I think it's called something like two weeks in two thousand and eighteen or two uh, two weeks in May.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Something like
1: that. Yeah. It's um it's definitely in my reference list. And if you haven't read that, um, I recommend to anyone listening to this to go in, and read May's work, but especially, um, two weeks in May, because it's a beautiful piece about pro wrestling and about, um, kind of how the split was still felt all those years later. And, uh, I definitely had to kind of bookmark, um, that as, one of the kind of uh points of history along the way if we're talking about the split you can't not talk about that match so again <laughs> i focus on 2000 and 2002 and then <laughs> jerk back to 2018 and kind of everywhere else but that's kind of the nature of it i think
0: definitely and what are your plans for Gambaru from here is there anything else that you would like to accomplish you did mention before that the paperback copy is now available, which is great. People can go out today and, and purchase. I know I purchased mine today, um, but what else are you, do you have in the works for Gombaru?
1: First of all, just thanks um, for letting me know that because right now, Amazon, don't tell me anything in terms of the sales figures. <laughs> it's a giant zero right now. Um, it says zero next to the number of paperbacks that I've sold because that information takes a while to get back to me an, an ebook you can measure it immediately um but in terms of the sales for uh the paperback uh it still says i've sold nothing so that's good to know that <laughs> i've still i've sold 200 percent more than that i've sold um i've sold two books apparently um you're the second person to let me know so thank you um the other thing there is that um i i kind of hope with that whole thing you know I, i've got um the paperback out and I kind of hope to promote that. And uh, I've got a few things lined up where I'll be talking about the book. So uh, Fumi Saito, I mentioned, is on a couple of podcasts. And one of them is called Write That Down. Um, And so the host of Write That Down and I will be talking a little bit about the book and All Japan. Um, We still have to line up the exact date and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So I'll be doing a couple of podcasts like this um, to kind of talk about the book and kind of uh, hopefully from there to uh, I guess think a little bit about where I want to take things after um, that but for now I'm just sort of focused on trying to get the book in as many eyes and let as many people know that I can about the fact that it exists um, it's a self-published thing so being a self-published book I kind of have to carry the process as far as any marketing or any kind of promotion uh, like that goes
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, all the challenges that come from that so I've definitely got a little bit of time ahead of me where I'll mostly be focused on that, but I've definitely got a few other ideas as well for what I want to do after that process is finished.
0: Wondering how we get it in front of like, I don't know, HBO. I like, I really think that it's, that's very, you know, it's a lofty goal, but I mentioned it in my review, but there, the story is incredibly cinematic and I, I don't know why it's not a I mean, granted, it could be a do- there could be some documentaries done in Japan. I, yeah. I've not seen them, and I wouldn't be able to understand them regardless. But there is something about the story where it's a shame that we don't have a documentary. It's a shame that we don't have um, a film because I think that this the story lends itself so easily to to that medium.
1: If I could be a talking head on Dark Side of the Ring, the old Japan split. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't think I'd be qualified to be a talking head on that show, but um, I think that. I showed this to a friend of mine. So a friend of mine who is not a wrestling fan, who has suffered through my fandom, um, <laughs> uh, was one of the people that edited the book for me. So she did like a, a sort of brief overview. Wasn't like a, a tough edit or anything like that. Just a, a real brief kind of looking over the whole story. And she said she got caught up in, and I quote, the soap opera of the thing. And I, that made me think, what? Um, someone needs to make a Misawa TV series. Like Netflix are yeah. currently looking at doing a series about in Japan, um, Netflix, Japan are working on a series about all Japan women's and um, about the early history in the 1980s of all Japan women's. But definitely I would love to see a Masawa series. Like his life is very complex. You could start with his home background. You could work up all the way to, his funeral and the stories that come out of it after he's gone and everything like that. I don't know why that hasn't been mine before. Mm -hmm. And um, another friend of mine, who's kind of a casual wrestling fan who read this book said to me afterwards, I don't know why I haven't heard more about this before. Mm -hmm. And I don't suppose you would, if you're outside of the wrestling bubble, um, if you're, if you're not a fan of professional wrestling, but I think there's a wider story that needs to be told here um, that, people who are not professional wrestling fans would get a kick out of, of knowing at least I am hoping some non-fans pick up this book. Mm-hmm. Um, if only to support me and to um, kind of uh, put up with my bullshit a bit more, as far as that, <laughs> I've definitely told some of my workmates about the book and stuff like that. So, you know uh, if nothing else, then just to sort of uh, my, my mother-in-law picked up a, a copy of the book actually, which was hilarious, but um definitely some people have really been um, supporting me through my bullshit as far as indulging me in buying the book. So we'll see. Um, She told me that her biggest takeaway was she didn't know that Hello Kitty was Japanese. She thought Hello Kitty was a Chinese brand. So if if you learn nothing else from this book, I guess there's that.
0: Super helpful. We're learning all kinds of things through your book. I think that's fantastic. And you also alluded to this earlier too, and you might not be able to share everything, but- Are you interested in writing more books or even some articles um, coming up on Japanese wrestling or just pro wrestling in general? And if you can share, um, is there any stories or people catching your eye right now?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've put together a proposal for a book that I've sent out and I'm waiting to hear back um, sort of as to where that goes and if they pick that proposal up. Um, But basically I wanted to do the history of pro wrestling Noah. So I want to start with Noah's formation, look at it from the Noah standpoint. I think I've, apart from the one chapter in the book, um, the book is mostly from all Japan's perspective. So this time around, I would like to do a different book that actually looked at the Noah side of things, mm-hmm. but more of a, a, a bigger expansive history. So I'd want to start with the formation of Noah and then go up to about 2021 when they returned to the Nippon Budokan. And, um, I think, uh, Keno's whole, that Keno promo where he starts (laughs) off by saying we're back at the Budokan. This is proof that if you, you know, if you believe something, if you, uh, follow your dreams, you can do it. And so I'm here at the Nippon Budokan in front of all of you assholes from (laughs) anyone else. That would be a massive tone shift, but from Keno, that's a perfect line. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, that's my kind of bookmarks for that would be from their formation to 2018. Yeah. um i've put together a small kind of i guess proposal to write that book and we'll see where that lands if i get to do it the other thing i really want to work on at some point is just the follow-up to this that would look purely at the muto years so from 2002 awesome. to mm-hmm. 2013 and a little bit of 2014 um looking at kind of um bookmarking uh that from the moment he takes over to the moment that he leaves to form wrestle one and then the efforts of uh, all japan uh, to pick up after that and a little bit about, I think, um, Akiyama and the role that Akiyama played in keeping the company going um, because technically all mm-hmm. Japan went out of business and started again under a new um, company listing and just bought a, all over all of the IP and all the wrestlers that they could. So there's a story about that as well, about kind of how they restarted from there. So that to me would be the bookmarks of the, the follow-up, the direct follow-up to Ganburu. Um Again, I don't know how I'd go about doing that because self-publishing um i've learned the ropes of that but it might be better to simply work for a publisher and to have that backing so Mm -hmm. again um these are the ideas that i have now um definitely stuff that i look forward to moving on to uh it largely depends on people getting back to me about the book and the proposal that i put together and (laughs) we'll see from there where all this lands
0: well, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed because there are two books that I'm desperate to read. So thank you for sharing that with me. I appreciate it. And this is a question that we ask all of our guests, regardless of what they've come on to talk about, but what wrestling are you keeping up with these days? And can you talk about some of your current favorite promotions, wrestlers, feuds, storylines, whatever, whatever speaks to you?
1: Of course. So uh, largely, obviously I keep up with all Japan. Um, I think that the current all Japan product, you know, I, I've read some comments um on twitter and the like where people sort of talk about 90s all japan and they say that was my favorite and now it's a shame I read one person said now it's a shame that product sucks and the product is fantastic now it's a, it's a great promotion still they're kind of a lot smaller scale than they were uh back in the 90s but they um then again they were always a small company as well um they ran it as Fumi Saito said like a mom and pop store so kind of has always been something of a small um, business in that way. Um, But definitely the current All Japan has a kind of uh, thing to it where they've had bad luck, but they continue on. They still have some fantastic wrestlers. Um, I very much am a big fan of and enjoyed the work of uh, Honda, uh, who was in the main event that I mentioned against uh, Kento. Uh, And he had his first singles match win in the Triple Crown tournament. And mm-hmm. so his second, I don't know if it was his second single match in all Japan, but it was definitely one of like, he's 21 years old and had a main event match for the triple crown and the poise that he conducted himself with and the way that he managed to kind of rise to the occasion there. And he didn't look out of place at 21. I think we're going to see big things from him. So he's one of the wrestlers I've got my eye on as far as um, someone whose work I, I enjoy and I think that we're going to see big things from him. Um, I'm hoping they keep pushing him because I think he'll be something special down the line. Um, so definitely uh, as far as that uh, goes, I think that would be current talent. Um, I keep in touch still with, um, it's not really popular as, as much on uh, online and definitely not as great as it used to be, but I still watch new Japan Pro wrestling a fair bit. And definitely when they're on and when they manage to connect the dots and produce good content, they, they manage to, have stuff that gets everyone talking. I I really loved Shibata's return. Mm -hmm. Like that to me was a huge moment. And uh, I really loved the New Japan Noah sort of beef that was happening and sort of the the single event that they had. I'm hoping we get some more stories from that Mm -hmm. because it would be a shame if that was left to one um, show i think there's plenty of meat on the bone there. there's plenty that they could go into i could fantasy book for days about where they could go th- from that um oh, yeah. and obviously I, i'm still watching a, a fair bit of noah i think personally noah has been having an awesome year this past year the the growth that they've had the english commentary the presentation and the fact that they're able to run the Budokan two times a year i think is fantastic um mm-hmm. they're definitely on the up and up right now and that's exciting to see so I think that's really it. I wish I had a bit more time, but having a a two-year-old kind of gets in the way of uh, my ability to watch wrestling. Um, He was watching with me a little bit and we weren't concerned about it. It was going really well. And he seemed, you know, he seemed to be, uh, sit there and watch it at least. And it was all great until he performed the kamagoye on his mom. As far as (laughs) being my wife, it was a very gentle me, but, he grabs her hands and everything to do it. So I think we pulled back from there and went, he's not watching wrestling with me for a little while yet. Um, I still need to convince her that it would be okay if we do. But um, definitely it's kind of a dream of mine to one day take him to Kirk and Hall and show him wrestling live and stuff like that. Um, I hope to be able to do that. But for now, I don't think... I, I think I'll be losing that battle as far as trying to convince my wife that that's something we can do now. So yeah. it limits a bit of my ability to watch stuff. I, I pick up on some DDT um, when I can. Um, they're a great product as well, but just time being a factor there.
0: That's completely understandable. <laughs> and so we're, we're winding down, Jonathan, but where can listeners purchase Gombaru?
1: So it's available through Amazon. Um, Amazon have just linked the paperback page to the uh, page of the eBooks available from. Um, so if you were to do a search in Amazon uh, for Gumbaru, G-A-N-B-A-R-U, G-A-N-B-A-R-U I, I don't know why I said that because that'll be on the, the notes, I'm sure, for this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, the first result, I think, is at least it was a book called The Gumburu Method, which is like a fitness book. Um, don't confuse it with that. But um, I think now it's the number one result. I'm not too sure, um, but you'll definitely find it on, on Amazon. And I know that Amazon are going to sell the paper back to some um, other networks as well. So it might be available through some other stores, but um, I only get a small kind of kickback from that. So please buy the thing through Amazon. Um, and for the rest of my work, uh, you can uh, find it on Twitter as well, uh, under my, my uh, Twitter handle, at Jonathan or one word. Um, that has the pin tweet, has the link there, as far as the book goes and everything else that I'm currently working on.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for all of your time, Jonathan. This has been so awesome and I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me though. This has been a, this is a great podcast um, that uh, you're putting out here as far as this goes. It's definitely one that has very quickly become one of my favorites. And I think the key amount of work that you're both putting into this has been pretty uh, clear throughout and pretty awesome to see. So thanks again.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to and supporting Kickout. Please subscribe to us or follow us on Apple or Spotify so that you can get our episodes first when they drop. We have some great episodes coming up over the next few weeks. On March 8th, we will have an interview with Matt Charlton, author of J. Crowned, the J. Crown edition coming your way. We'll return to NOAA on March 22nd with a deep dive on the now-defunct Hardcore title, which will really be a fun one. On April 5th, we'll jump back into our Faction series, the deep dive into All Japan Pro Wrestling. We have also recently launched Talking Triple Crown, a monthly All Japan Pro Wrestling show hosted by Jesse of Royal Road 72 on Twitter. So keep an eye on our feed for the next episode. For more news and updates, please follow KickOut299 on Twitter. To follow me, Alicia, you can find me at Sharanui Kai with two eyes. To follow Rachel, you can find them at Milky Star. That's M Double I K Y star. You can also check out our e-zine at kickout299.wordpress.com. We recently published an article about the history of the tag team No Limit by Zavi, who you can follow on Twitter at dumb Millennial. So please give that a read if you can. To send us questions, feedback, or submit a pitch for the podcast or e please email kickout at at299 at gmail.com. Thank you once again, and we'll talk to you all soon.